Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And welcome to The Lead. I'm Pamela Brown in today for Jake Tapper. And we begin with the health lead. As the nation nears 5 million confirmed cases of coronavirus, with more than 150,000 deaths. The World Health Organization warning today that there is no silver bullet to end this pandemic, and there may never be. One top official leading the coronavirus response for the organization is saying that everyone is feeling the fatigue of this pandemic, but, quote, we have a long way to go. That reality, as the CDC projects, there could be up to 27,000 more people killed before the end of this month. And as CNN Sarah Seidner reports, Dr. Deborah Burks is telling CNN the virus is more widespread now in the U.S. than ever before. It will be felt for uh, decades to come. The head of the World Health Organization predicting the effects of the coronavirus pandemic will last for decades. Not only on the health aspect, but on social, economic and political. The coronavirus is still spreading out of control in parts of the United States, and death tolls are continuing to climb. We are very concerned, and this is a very serious point, and deaths will continue to increase for the next few weeks. One reason why? The U.S. is in a new phase, according to the White House's point person on COVID response, Dr. Deborah Burks. What we're seeing today is different from March and April. It is extraordinarily widespread. It's into the rural as equal urban areas. And to everybody who lives in a rural area, you are not immune or protected from this virus. The numbers back that up. July's total new cases more than double that of any other previous month. The hotspots mostly flaring up in the south and west. Mississippi, now the highest percentage of positive COVID-19 cases in the country with a staggering 21% positivity rate. South Carolina follows with 18%. As you see us now, a hurricane threatens its shores. In Florida, the storm's winds forced some testing sites to close for a bit, creating a drop in confirmed cases. Those sites now back open. We are encouraged by some of the trends we're seeing. Uh, We continue to see a, a downward trend in visits to the emergency department. Still, Florida is on the verge of hitting 500,000 confirmed coronavirus infections. California, with nearly double Florida's population, has already surpassed that terrible milestone. Despite that, in a state order shutting down bars three weeks ago in Los Angeles, dozens attended a party thrown for first responders without masks or physical distancing. Across America's schools are beginning to open up now. Indiana and Georgia already seeing coronavirus infections, forcing some students to return to virtual learning next week. We're asking people to distance learn at this moment so we can get this epidemic under control. And we are learning just how deadly the coronavirus has become across the world. The top epidemiologists at the WHO saying that COVID-19 kills 
about 0.6% of all patients. Now, that might sound like a very small number, 0.6%, but if you take into account that that number means the coronavirus is six times more deadly than the seasonal flu. Pam? That is frightening. Thank you so much, Sarah. And I want to discuss all of this with CNN Chief Medical Correspondent Dr. Sanjay Gupta. Great to see you. So much to discuss here. And I want to start with what we heard from Deborah Burks, saying that the U.S. is in this new phase of the pandemic. You've been analyzing all of the reams of data coming in since February. Mm. What makes this phase new and different in your view in a nutshell? Well, you know, when, when this started, this was primarily on the coasts. This, this COVID, these COVID new infections in Washington State, California, New York, big airports, people coming in from overseas, and now it started to spread. Uh, we've seen it in the South, obviously, uh, where I am in Georgia, Florida, Texas, Arizona, but it's mainly been in very populated cities, even within those states, and now you're starting to see it spread more into the rural areas and significantly. I mean, the graph tells the story, right? The question is, are all these waves going to come down and stay down, or are they going to keep having this sort of roller coaster effect in different parts of the country at different mm-hmm. times? Right. And, you know, we heard from Dr. Burks about this idea that the U.S. has hit this reset on the pandemic five to six weeks ago. It's hard to imagine that when you look at graphs like that, um, Dr. Gupta. Have you seen evidence that there has been this reset? Uh, If so, is another reset necessary? Well, I I don't really, you know, I heard that comment and I wasn't quite sure what she meant. You know, certainly five to six weeks ago, there was a sustained sort of uh, effort in the South, you know, in Arizona and Texas and Florida to really start to try and bring these numbers down in those places. But but if by reset you mean, hey, look, now we have a problem over here, a fire over here, we're going to go put that fire out. And now there's another fire over here, so we're going to go put that out. I mean, that that's that's kind of what's happening. That's not a strategy, right? That's mm-hmm. just sort of putting pressure on bleeding spots, you know, without actually addressing the underlying problem. So mm-hmm. it's not really a reset as much as doing what has to be done. All right. So let's talk about the big picture here, because the president's health experts are adamant wearing masks, social distancing, basic hygiene will control this pandemic will help bring it under control. But there is no consistent message from the president about these mitigation steps. No message of unity rallying the country to come together. The president seems singularly focused on treatment and a vaccine. Do you think he should be more focused on both? Yes, absolutely. I mean, a treatment of vaccine is a is maybe a brighter spot story, you know, in all of this. And that's happening. And, but that's but months away a vaccine. Is, it's months know. away, you know. And so, but the other measures, Pamela, you, you got to keep in mind that there's no country in the world that has a vaccine, no mm-hmm. country that has a magic therapeutic. And yet they've done much, much better, many of them, than we have and with the strategies you just mentioned. In fact, I would go, go so far as to say for the next three weeks, if we wore masks, we went outside, if we avoided large gatherings, avoided bars, restaurants, things like that, kept physical distance and washed hands, which sounds silly, right? So simple. And yet if we did that for three weeks as a nation, I guarantee you, Pamela, we'd be having a very different conversation 21 days from now because the curves would all come down. Okay, so so we've seen this president say, look, it's up to the states. We're, I'm not going to impose a federal mandate on mask wearing. But do you think this state-by-state approach is, in essence, enabling the virus rather than containing it? Yes, I I think absolutely. And and to add on to that, I mean, there is a a right scientifically-based answer here, right? Handling it state-by-state based on what? If they're all basing on science, then fine. 
but there, there is a right answer. You know, the things that I just mentioned, because we have real-world evidence that they've worked in other countries. Mm -hmm. So whether it's a state's issue or a federal issue, the point is that this isn't, there, there's not a lot of subjectivity here. There is the right thing to do, and mm -hmm. there's a lot of states that aren't doing it. And like you said, I mean, you look at the, the numbers, the U.S. has one of the worst outbreaks out of the 50 most populous countries in the world. So you have to take a step back and say, okay, we're six months into this. What more can we do? Now you have this issue of returning to school that's on every parent's mind, teacher's yeah. mind, student's mind, my mind, your mind. Um, you know, in Georgia's Gwinnett County, more than 250 employees are not working after testing positive or being exposed. The school year has barely begun. We're seeing outbreaks in Indiana and other states. What's your takeaway here? You know, I, I'm with you in terms of, you know, this is topic number one, right, in, mm -hmm. our, in our household. I have three girls, uh, 11, 13, and 15. Um, I think it's an exercise probably in futility. I mean, it's a very contagious virus. Where I live, the numbers have been going up. I think, you know, dis I think people are going to do their best efforts, but I think you're going to run into situations where, you know, you could have a super spreader event, as we probably mm -hmm. saw in Gwinnett and at, and at Camp High Harbor, you know, which you may be familiar with. Uh, you know, they, they significant 240 kids got infected there as well. So mm -hmm. it's it's going to be tough. I think you know there's going to be these stutter starts where you know maybe they start, but then they have to go back to virtual learning uh, pretty quickly. Yeah, I mean, as a parent myself, I'm still not sure what I'm going to do um, next month when my son's supposed to go to school. It's just hard to know, and it seems like the data in terms of kids um, um, transmitting the virus isn't really ironclad. There's still a lot of open questions, right? Because some studies have come out, or at least one has come out saying that they hold more of the virus in their noses than, than adults. I mean, what are, what are parents supposed to think right now? Well, I think that the kids are 10 and older. Uh, the, the data is clearer, at least, I would from say. From the South uh, Korea study, right? From the South Korea study, exactly. And basically, the, the, the bottom line was they were transmitting as much as adults. I will tell you this. We, we don't know about kids younger than that in large part because, you know, if you think about it, they really haven't been out of the house much. They don't have a lot of contacts to trace younger mm -hmm. kids since mid-March. So we, we don't have good data, but typically, you know, little kids are the ones who actually spread these viruses. Think about your little kids. They're, you know, always, they always have some sort of respiratory virus and they're more likely to spread. I don't know that this will be different, but we just don't have the data yet to say mm -hmm. how much do they spread. We know they don't get a sick, but they could still spread it a lot. Right. It's hard when, you know, all the kids have been staying at home for the most part. It's a very different um, situation when you That's put right. them in together in school. And so we just don't have a clear picture in terms of what would happen then. And, and before we end, um, Sanjay, I, I want to go to some of your reporting and analysis on people who may have built in protection against coronavirus because of what's known as T-cells. Explain. Yeah, this is fascinating and, and may, maybe some good news. Uh, basically, they're, they're, they found in the study where they looked at people who were, they were trying to find antibodies in their blood after they recovered from coronavirus. They wanted to compare it to people who'd never been exposed. So they found blood samples back date, dating to 2015. And even within those old blood samples, they found that the, those blood samples had T-cell reactivity. It's not antibodies per se, but it's another part of the immune system that was very reactive to the coronavirus, mm. suggesting there was some recognition of this virus. What they propose is that there's other coronaviruses out there, and because of exposure to those common cold sort of coronaviruses, people might have some native immunity to this. It's mm. very early science, but if it's true, that could provide some additional immunity for the world. We, you know, so we'll have to wait and see. Absolutely. Well, it's encouraging uh, nonetheless, yeah. and we'll take any encouraging news we can get right now. Dr. Sanjay Gupta, thank you so much. You got it. Thank you.
And coming up, as the pandemic continues to spiral out of control in the U.S., President Trump just attacked Dr. Fauci, and now he's targeting another member of his task force. Plus, an anti-mask couple changing their mind as a nearby store owner says, take them off. We're unmasking the debate up next. Turning to our politics lead now, President Trump with sharp words for Dr. Deborah Birx after she told CNN the pandemic is, quote, extraordinarily widespread in the U.S. Well, now the president is accusing her of, quote, taking the bait and called her pathetic. And as CNN's Caitlin Collins reports, this comes after House Speaker Pelosi said she didn't have confidence in Dr. Birx's handling of the pandemic. I don't agree with that. President Trump is lashing out at one of his top health experts today, but this time it's not Dr. Anthony Fauci he's criticizing. It's Dr. Deborah Birx after she made this warning on CNN. What we're seeing today is different from March and April. It is extraordinarily widespread. Trump called that answer from Dr. Deborah Birx pathetic and claimed that she took the bait and hit us because House Speaker Nancy Pelosi said repeatedly that she had no confidence in Birx. I don't have confidence. Uh, and anyone who stands there while the president says uh, swallow Lysol and it's going to cure your virus, you know, it'll kill you and you won't have the virus anymore. Pelosi had also criticized Burks for not being forthcoming enough and enabling Trump's misinformation, criticisms that Burks pushed back on. I have never been called Pollyannish or non-scientific or non-data driven. And I will stake my 40-year career on those fundamental principles. This was the first time Trump has attacked Burks publicly. And it came after his own staff spent the weekend accusing Pelosi of attempting to undermine her, which they said was deeply irresponsible and, quote, just wrong. Burks is far from the only health official the president is contradicting. Yesterday, his testing chief said it was time to move on from hydroxychloroquine because enough studies had shown it wasn't effective. The evidence just doesn't show that hydroxychloroquine is effective right now. I think we need to move on from that and talk about what is effective. But Trump made clear today he's not ready to move on from the drug he's touted. Hydroxy uh, has tremendous uh, support. But politically, it's toxic because uh, I supported it. The president is pushing hydroxychloroquine again, as CNN has learned the testing regimen has been amped up inside the West Wing. Staffers may now be randomly selected to undergo mandatory COVID-19 testing. Two weeks ago, on July 19th, President Trump made this promise. We're signing a health care plan within two weeks, a full and complete health care plan. Despite that vow, it never happened and Trump has unveiled no new plan. Aides have worried the move could hurt his campaign given how voters have prioritized health care. And his re-election effort is out with two new ads in states that the president needs to win today after briefly pausing to rethink their strategy. The new ads hit former Vice President Joe Biden but make no mention of COVID-19. Now, Pam Biden is criticizing the president for going after his own health experts. He just tweeted, it's hard to believe this has to be said, but he said, if I'm elected president, I'll spend my Monday mornings working with our nation's top experts to control this virus, not insulting them on Twitter. And we should note that talking about those new campaign ads from the Trump campaign during the month in July, according to a database that tracks this, Pam, there was not a single Trump campaign ad that even mentioned the pandemic that's going on. Hmm. All right. Very important to point that out. Caitlin, thank you so much for that. 
And meantime, let's go to Capitol Hill. There's, that's where negotiators are back to work out this emergency aid package. Now, both sides are projecting a positive tone, but sources tell CNN the two camps are as far apart as they have ever been. Reminder, there is so much at stake here. Last week, the $600 a week federal unemployment benefit that many Americans were using to pay bills and get by expired, as did the temporary federal stop on evictions. CNN's Phil Mattingly is live from Capitol Hill. So, Phil, the big question, was this meeting today any more productive than the meeting on Saturday? Is there any hope right now? Look, I think there's hope because it's Capitol Hill and things can often come together quickly, particularly in deadline scenarios. But look, Pamela, you mentioned the stakes. They're enormous. And at this point in time, after this nearly two-hour meeting, the sixth meeting in the last week between the top Democratic negotiators and top White House negotiators, productive was about all they've got. Both Speaker Nancy Pelosi and Senate Democratic Leader Chuck Schumer said they are still a ways away on some of this, the biggest, most important issues. They worked very hard and got in the weeds a little bit on education funding, which is obviously an enormous piece of this as well. But until they figure out, as you noted, the federal unemployment benefit, states and local issues uh, funding, there are just a myriad of issues right now where the two sides are very, very far apart and obviously a very limited amount of time to try and reach a deal given the fact that real people with very real issues are hurting right now, Pamela. Americans are hurting uh, watching this all play out. And then you have President Trump. And the question is, what is his role in all of this? He was seen golfing over the weekend while his aides were on Capitol Hill working on the deal. What is he doing to to bridge the gap here? It's it's unclear. You know, it's kind of fascinating. And this has actually been the case from really every single one of the coronavirus response packages where the president has not had a very hands on role. He hasn't spoken to Speaker Nancy Pelosi in months, I'm told, certainly hasn't been involved in negotiations with the speaker in a very long time, leaves that up to his top lieutenants and Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin made clear they briefed the president after each one of these meetings. And the president has taken on more of the harsh rhetoric tone than the deal making tone. Take a listen. What Chuck Schumer wants more than anybody, and I would say Nancy Pelosi would be second. They want to bail out cities and states that have done a bad job over a long period of time. Nothing to do with coronavirus or China virus or whatever you want to call it. They want to bail out cities and states. They want bailout money. And Pamela, that, he's talking about funding for states and localities, and that, again, is a huge issue between Democrats and Republicans. Democrats have asked for nearly a trillion dollars to fund states and localities. Republicans have said the money you got in the first package was enough. The president weighing in with his opinion. The question now is, does that opinion help bridge this divide at any point? And it certainly doesn't seem like it, Pamela. It certainly doesn't. All right, Phil Madden, Lisa, on top of it, you're doing a great job there at Capitol Hill. Thanks so much. And coming up, as nations around the world have flattened the curve, the author of the new report, How the Pandemic Defeated America, joins me with his findings up next. Turning to our health lead now, it is called How the Pandemic Defeated America, and it's an in-depth new report in The Atlantic. More than 100 experts were interviewed to find out why this coronavirus is hitting America so much harder than most other countries. So the article lays out how nearly everything that could have gone wrong did. Hospitals were unprepared, uh, underprepared, public health teams were underfunded, and systemic racism left people of color more vulnerable to the virus. But it also points to one other glaring issue, inaction by President Trump and the federal government, especially in those early days, noting, quote, America first was America oblivious. 
Joining me now is Ed Young, a staff writer at The Atlantic and the author of this piece. And I read I read every page of your article, and it is so insightful, Ed, on so many different levels, just really peeling back the layers of how we got to this point six months into this pandemic and, and be, had, having one of the worst outbreaks um, out of the 50 most populous countries in the world. And an epidemiologist at Harvard Medical School told you this, quote, the U.S. fundamentally failed in ways that were worse than I could have ever imagined. How did one of the <laughs> wealthiest countries in the world get here, Ed? It's a good question. It's one I've been trying to answer for months now. I think so many um, vulnerabilities contributed to um, America's poor performance here. Obviously, um, a, a, uh, a poor federal response was part of that. Um, Trump and his administration have ignored and dismissed experts for the entirety of their time in power. They have um, not listened to sound advice. They have promoted misinformation. And it should be no surprise then that they failed to take account of any of the warnings that were given early on during this pandemic, allowing the virus to spread through the country. But that virus then found prisons that were overstuffed with people, nursing homes that were understaffed and underfunded, public health, uh, um, public health departments that had been underfunded for decades, hospitals that were stretched thin um, and, and that where um, exorbitant amounts of money were spent, but for very little reward. Hmm. Um, and it found all the inequalities you spoke of, the legacy of America's racism and colonialism that left people um, from indigenous and black and brown um, communities disproportionately affected by this virus. There are mm -hmm. so many historical sins that have come to roost right now. Absolutely. And like you said, this pandemic has been both tragedy and teacher. And I think it's causing a lot of us to step back and say, OK, you know, what is it about our history that we need to, to do a better job on moving forward? What can we learn from this? Mm -hmm. And one of the glaring issues you laid out in your piece um, was looking at the hospitals. And one doctor told you that hospitals are prepared for trauma like mass shootings or hurricanes, but not a pandemic. Why is that? So they are prepared for short-term disasters, not long-term recurring rolling ones, especially not ones that affect all 50 states at once, um, and, and thus pr pr producing a huge amount of pressure on the system and on the supply chains that provide equipment and drugs on which the hospitals depend. Um, there's also the fact that um, America has this weird and unique system of health insurance that ties healthcare to employment. And so in a situation like this, when millions of people have lost their jobs, millions of people also have lost access to healthcare at a time when they need it the most. And finally, this country specifically has this attitude to healthcare where it focuses on treating people who are sick at exorbitant cost rather than preventing that sickness in the first place. So that is the job of public health, the job of vaccination um, uh, and uh, sanitation services. And that has been chronically underfunded and undervalued for a long time, which means that people in this pandemic got sick and then they flooded hospitals, which struggled to cope with them. Now, if we can change the attitudes, if we can focus on 
systems that will stop people from getting sick in the first place, if we can value that, like we value um, hospital-based healthcare, we will be in a lot better situation, not just in this pandemic, but in future Right, those, those mitigation steps that public health experts keep saying you should do. Um, and, you yeah. know, when, when you talk to the president and you, when you bring up missteps from the government early on, one thing that he continually points to is the China travel ban as pointing out, hey, look, look what I did. I went against some of my advisors and put a ban on, on China and travel. But you lay out the, why that that wasn't a panacea. Writing, quote, in practice, travel bans are woefully inefficient at restricting either travel or viruses. Can you expand on that? Yeah, I, I grant that um, travel bans seem like a very intuitive measure. Obviously, people who are traveling around the world carry and spread the virus. The problem is that travel bans are actually a really bad way of restricting either viruses or indeed travel because people find ways of circumventing them. If you block one country, people will go via an intermediate. Um, if you launch a travel ban, as Trump did against Europe, a lot of people will flood to your country in anticipation in order to avoid that ban. And besides, Trump's travel ban against China in the initial days was incredibly porous and let tens of thousands of people in. So. It seems like a good idea, but in practice, it just doesn't work. And it le leads to a false sense of security where someone like Trump can think, I've solved the problem. I've put a travel ban in without right. doing any of the things that they actually need to do, like instill testing, like getting hospitals ready. Now, really quick, before I let you go, obviously, this is a, a very critical look. Um, but what have been the bright spots in your view? You know, the administration talks about, look, we have all the ventilators we need. Um, we have seen Americans coming together in many ways. What to you are, are some of those bright spots? I think one of the bright spots is that um, despite America's um, stereotypical um, Hewington individualism, this rugged individualism, so many Americans did take collective action for each other's good. They stayed at home. They wear, they're wearing masks, a lot of them. And, and I think that it shows that the American public have been willing to take the actions necessary to save themselves and each other. And that is what we need. Now, if only they could do that with the support of the federal government, not in opposition to it. All right, Ed Young, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. And up next, they said they treated coronavirus like it was a joke, but now one couple's message has changed. Keep your distance and wear a freaking mask. I think we're doing a great job. I think we're doing great on vaccines. We're doing great on therapeutics. You'll be seeing that very soon. So there you heard President Trump touting uh, progress on potential COVID-19 treatments and a vaccine. Well, every health public health official is eager to have a safe and effective vaccine. But some doctors and scientists are publicly expressing concern that President Trump could try to roll out a less safe vaccine by October for political gain. Joining me now is Dr. Carlos Del Rio, a professor at Emory University School of Medicine. Thank you so much for coming on, Dr. Del Rio. You know, when we hear the president speak, he seems very focused on treatments and a pending vaccine. Do you think when you listen to him, he, he is way moved on from the possibility of containing or controlling this virus with effective mitigation? Well, first of all, we need to continue containing and controlling this virus because the reality is it's going to be several months before we have a vaccine. 
even if everything goes perfectly well, and before we can vaccinate everybody that needs to be vaccinated. So the reality is we have a vaccine right now, and it's called wear a face mask, wash your distance, wash your hands. If people did that, we can actually slow transmission of this virus and buy ourselves some time. So when we have a vaccine, there wouldn't be as many infected individuals, and more importantly, there wouldn't be as many death individuals. Currently, about a thousand Americans are dying every every day from this virus. Mm -hmm. And if we're going to wait, if everything goes well between now and the end of the year, you're talking about you know another 150,000 people dying from this disease. I think that is simply something we should not accept. And we should, we should, quite frankly, try to stop. Hmm. So you're saying, look, wear a mask, social distance. That is a vaccine we can be doing in real time. <clears throat> Are, do you think that this is a realistic concern that President Trump could rush a vaccine to market in an October surprise before the election, despite the safety assurances that we've heard from Dr. Fauci and others? Well, I think if, you know a lot of things have not worked well in the response to this pandemic. One thing has worked incredibly well and that is the U.S. and the international research infrastructure. We have done, as a research community, an incredible job getting a virus, isolating a virus, and getting from discovering a virus to giving a vaccine, the first shot to an individual in less than 65 days. We are, you know, six months into this pandemic, and we're already doing not one, but five phase three studies in which trying to find what is, what is an effective vaccine. We may have, Dr. Fauci says, we need a lot of shots on goal, but we also need a lot of those shots to be goals. So we may not have one vaccine. We may have three, four, or five vaccines that work. Now, we may have none. But I think very unlikely if out of five or six or seven vaccines being tested, none of them gives us some protection. Now, the research community is focused on research. And as long as the research community does the research the way I know they're going to do it, and I'm one of the investigators, political pressure is not going to be an issue. Mm -hmm. It's going to be really doing the study, collecting the data, and having independent data safety monitoring boards look at the data. Now, if an independent safety data monitoring board in October looks at the data and says, wow, this vaccine looks great, you know, I, I would be very happy for that, that to be, be released. Great. And yeah. That would be great, you know. I want, right. I want a vaccine. But yeah, I mean, I think everyone wants a vaccine. Well, I shouldn't say everyone, but most people want a, want a vaccine because I know there are some people who are skeptical of, of the vaccine and what that may be, which is why the data behind it and, and the safety information behind it is that is so important to reassure people about that. And look, let's just look at the reality here. So say a vaccine, um, there's one vaccine that's approved that makes it through all, you know, all the trials and everything. But a vaccine that might work for a child may not work for a senior citizen. So, so it's not necessarily a one size fits all. So practically, how would that work? Well, you know, the clinical trials are enrolling people 18 and older. So Yes, we're not going to have a lot of data in children to begin with, but those, those data will come later. I think, you know, the most important thing is that developing a vaccine against a respiratory virus like this one is not going to be a perfect vaccine. It's not going to be a vaccine that produces 100% protection. I'm almost positive of that. You're going to have a vaccine that protects 40, 50%, maybe 60%, just like the flu vaccine does. And that would be good. That would be good enough, but it's going to be very challenging, right? Because then you're not going to know who's protected, who's not. So the reality is, even with a vaccine, mitigation strategies are necessary. We're going to have to continue social distancing. We're going to have to continue doing all sorts of things in order to decrease the risk of, of infection. Eventually, right. the virus may indeed stop transmitting, but it's going to take some time to do that. A vaccine is not the answer. Now, therapeutics are also important, and treatment right. is critically important. Okay, and as we advance research, re treatment will improve. 
Well, and that's good. We want we want treatment to improve. But let me just ask ask you this: as you know, you read about the coronavirus mutating. How effective would a vaccine being created now help in the long term if the if the virus mutates? You know, all viruses tend to mutate. RNA viruses tend to mutate, mutate more. Some mutations are actually beneficial to the virus. Some mutations are actually not beneficial to the virus. The virus can mutate, mutate to make itself not very infectious. So far, the mutations that have been seen in this virus are not affecting the spike protein. The spike protein is the key the virus has to enter the cells, and that's where most of the vaccines are directed against. So while you know the, the door may be remodeling and the house may have a new paint, the door is still the same, the key is still the same, and as long as the key is the same, it hasn't changed, because that's what made the virus be able to infect human cells. It attaches to a receptor in human cells, and the virus knows that in order to mutate that, it may lose its ability to to attach to the cell. As long as that's the case, we're going to be fine. The vaccines are going to work despite the so quote unquote mutations. So I will tell people okay. not to worry that much about those mutations at this point in time. Okay, well, that is reassuring to hear then on that note. All right, Dr. Carlos Del Rio, thank you so much. Delighted to be with you. So she dismissed the warnings, mingled with friends, didn't wear a mask, and ended up wearing oxygen instead. One woman from Arizona who thought COVID 19 would never touch her family is now changing her tune. And as CNN's Miguel Marquez reports, now she's urging others to take this virus seriously and wear a mask, even in a state where the debate is still highly polarizing. We were totally lackadaisy about it. Debbie and Michael Patterson didn't think the coronavirus would ever affect them. It was sort of almost like a joke in our group of friends. Did you wear masks? Nope. Did you hang out with your friends as normal? Mm Mm-hmm. So all the things you're told you should back off of. We did. did. We did. We did. We did. And we still... paid the price for. Yeah. From Lake Havasu City on Arizona's border with California, the Pattersons didn't give the virus much thought, even once developing symptoms in late June. We just kind of carried on, went to the pool, did stuff, you know, over the rest of the weekend. And then that Monday morning is when we both woke up and we just felt like a train had gone over both of us. Michael got sick. Debbie had to be hospitalized, put on oxygen, but did not need a ventilator. Over a month later, how are you now? Um, Well, obviously still short of breath, um, coughing, just the fatigue and dizziness, headaches almost daily. It's almost like somebody hit you in the head. They once laughed about the virus. Now they say it's no joke. What is your message to people now? Be more careful. Keep your distance and wear a freaking mask. In this ultra-conservative corner of the state, masks still highly controversial. We make any member or any customer that's walking through our doors remove their face mask. Um, Again, that's our pride. That's also the understanding that you're... So so you make people remove the mask when they come in? Absolutely. You do not shop my store without with a mask on, period. For, For sure. gun shop owner Patrick Boffman, the coronavirus itself doesn't add up. But 150,000 people are dead. Over 150,000 uh, I, I, I definitely don't agree with that number that you just threw out there. What, um, I think what that do you not agree with? There's so many cases of fraudulent um, claims as far as how they're reporting numbers. Public health officials believe the number of dead from COVID-19 is probably higher than the official count, not lower. When the president comes out and says, wear a mask, 
Do you think he's just playing politics? Unfortunately, I do at that point think that he's playing politics because originally he did come out calling this entire thing a hoax. For the Pattersons, the coronavirus is no hoax and speaking out, not a political act. It's a friendly warning. It's ridiculous not to take this seriously. I mean, I could have died just like the next person. I mean, any, anybody can. It could have been either one of us or both of us. So if you think that you can't get this because you live in a small town, look at the Pattersons. Uh, they are an example to the otherwise, and they should also be thanked for speaking out. It's not easy, not easy being from Lake Havasu City. She's a Trump supporter. She supported him in 2016, probably will again in 2020. All those things, their group of friends, very, very difficult for them to speak out, but they are because they had it and they now get it, and they say everyone should learn from their experience. Pamela? Absolutely. Really important story. Miguel, thank you so much for that. And up next, an emotional plea from the federal judge whose son was killed when a gunman knocked on their front door and opened fire. We are living every parent's worst nightmare, making preparations to bury, bury our only child, Daniel. Well, for the first time, we are hearing from that federal judge whose family was attacked last month. Judge Esther Salas, visibly emotional and between deep breaths and long and pauses, says she is living every parent's worst nightmare. She's preparing to bury her 20-year-old son, who was shot and killed by a gunman at their home, with her husband still in the hospital after being seriously injured. Here's CNN's Alexandra Field with Judge Salas's emotional plea. Two weeks ago, my life as I knew it changed in an instant, and my family will never be the same. A madman who I believe was targeting me because of my position as a federal judge came to my house. Federal Judge Esther Solis's only child, Daniel Andrell, spent his last weekend with his family at home in New Jersey celebrating his 20th birthday. The weekend was a glorious one. It was filled with love and laughter and smiles. Daniel and I went downstairs to the basement and we were chatting as we always do. And Daniel said, Mom, let's keep talking. I love talking to you, Mom. And it was at that exact moment that the doorbell rang. And Daniel looked at me and said, who is that? And before I could say a word, he sprinted upstairs. Within seconds, I heard the sound of bullets and someone screaming, no. Daniel was shot in the chest, blocking his father, Mark, who was shot three times and survived. We are living every parent's worst nightmare, making preparations to bury, bury our only child, Daniel. And I am here asking everyone to help me ensure that no one ever has to experience this kind of pain. We may not be able to stop something like this from happening again, but we can make it hard for those who target us to track us down.
The suspected shooter, Roy Den Hollander, died by suicide, an attorney and men's rights activist who had argued a case before Judge Solis and then, in hate-filled writings on the Internet, attacked her in racist and sexist terms. As federal judges, we understand that our decisions will be scrutinized. And some may disagree strongly with our rulings. But what we cannot accept is when we are forced to live in fear for our lives because personal information like our home addresses can easily be obtained by anyone seeking to do us or our families harm. Unfortunately for my family, the threat was real. And the free flow of information from the internet allowed this sick and depraved human being to find all our personal information and target us. At the moment, there is nothing we can do to stop it. And that is unacceptable. Salas says the killer kept a dossier on her family. Law enforcement sources say he had a target list that included the names of several other judges and a photo of New York's top state court judge, Janet DeFiori. After the New Jersey shooting, she was given state police protection. A mother, now in the deepest kind of pain, is calling for more. My son's death cannot be in vain, which is why I am begging those in power to do something to help my brothers and sisters on the bench. A truly powerful appeal from Daniel's mother. Federal judges do receive some protection from U.S. Marshals, but for years there have been calls to do more. You heard the judge there saying it is time now to have a national conversation about not just how to better protect judges, but their loved ones, their Mm -hmm. families too. Pamela? What a powerful, powerful video that was. Thank you so much, Alexandra. I want to turn now to our national lead. There's a tropical storm that's expected to strengthen to a hurricane today. And more than 100 million people from South Carolina to New York are at risk for major flooding and severe winds. CNN meteorologist Tom Sater is tracking this storm. So where exactly will it make landfall and how soon, Tom? Well, it looks like Issa Eos, as you mentioned, should make landfall at hurricane status uh, right around the midnight hour, give or take an hour, and that would be east of Charleston. But take a look at this. Watches and warnings from Florida to Canada. We haven't seen this since 1960 when Hurricane Donna moved into the area. I think Issa Eos is going to shock a lot of people tonight and through the day tomorrow into Wednesday. We've got the hurricane watch for areas of South Carolina into North Carolina, also a tornado watch now posted just moments ago for the same area until about 2.30 in the morning, but it's increased the storm surge from 2 to 4 to 3 to 5. That's just one element. As it moves now closer to Charleston, roads are already closed. They're inundated with rainfall, full moon, high tide tonight at 9 p.m. The stasis to the east, but notice the flow coming in now, of course, battering the coastlines of South and North Carolina. As the system moves up, here's the key. We've got ourselves two frontal systems that are moving toward the region. First one from New York down to the south. See all the rain in advance of that system? But it's the second one from Detroit back in areas of the Midwest that's going to race 
to the east. It's going to meet up with Isaias and intensify this storm where it's going to unleash torrents of rainfall. Areas of the Carolinas already inundated with heavy rainfall. Then you toss in the strong winds. Get this. Philadelphia, tomorrow afternoon, 60, 65 mile per hour winds. New York City, 65 to 70. We haven't seen winds like this in New York City, Pamela, since Superstorm Sandy almost eight years ago. Comes in tomorrow between 5 and 7 p.m. It's going to be a long couple days. That is frightening. And here we are in the yes. middle of a pandemic. Now we have this. All right. Thanks so much, Tom. I'm Pamela Brown in for Jake Tapper. Follow me on Twitter, Pamela Brown CNN, uh, or the, tweet the show at the lead CNN. Our coverage on CNN continues right now. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.